I think a lot of us get nervous when we go to church and we hear that the talk is going to be about money. Because first of all, we have this fear that the church is going to say they want our money. But if you'll just hang with me, I think you'll see that's not what this talk is about. But I think there's another reason why we get a little nervous when the church has a talk about money. And that is, I think, deep down in our core, we have this sense that if we could ever have a one-on-one meeting with Jesus, he would tell us to sell everything we have, give everything away, and go live in a monastery somewhere. And so because of that, we have sort of a pushback. It's like, well, I, I'd be okay with God talking to me about sex or about relationships, or I'd be okay with God talking to me about spirituality, but I'm not really sure I want to have this talk with God about money because I think if, if, if God could ever just talk to me, he would want me to get rid of everything and then just totally live by faith and walk the streets and, and, and tell his message. Well, I think that's because there was an exchange between Jesus and a, and a guy in the Bible, and sometimes I think we read something into that that was never meant to be read into it. Some of you who grew up in Sunday school as I did, you know the story of the rich young ruler, like he had it printed on his checks, the rich young ruler. But really, it's a young man who came to Jesus, and in an exchange with Jesus, Jesus told him to sell everything he had to give it to the poor and come follow him. But there are a couple things that you need to know in order to truly understand that exchange. The first thing that you need to know is Jesus never told anybody else that. You know, there were other people in Jesus' life who were well-to-do. Jesus didn't tell them to sell everything, give it away, and come follow him. Mary and Martha were businesswomen. They had a fine home in Bethany, two miles outside of Jerusalem. Every time Jesus went to Jerusalem, as far as we know, he stayed in the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Jesus didn't tell them to sell their house. He stayed in their house. So you need to understand that as far as we know, Jesus never told anybody else to sell everything, give it away, and come follow him. The second thing you need to know about that exchange was that that young man was trying to convince Jesus that he was perfect. He was trying to convince Jesus that he had a right to go to heaven because he was totally perfect. Jesus knew he wasn't perfect. Jesus knew he loved money more than he loved anything else. And so that's why he set up that paradigm. That's why he set up that test. It wasn't to say to him, if you sold everything and gave it away, you'd be perfect. He just wanted the guy to see that clearly he loved money more than he loved God, although he was claiming to be perfect. So setting that aside for the moment and realizing that that's not something that you and I need to see in the context that we've often thought about it, it could be that you come from a very different tradition in religion. And you were taught that those people who were truly holy took a vow of poverty. So in other words, the very highest level of leader in the church had taken a vow of poverty, and because of that, they were closer to God. But then, isn't it strange how much stuff religion brings to us that's nowhere close to the Bible? Nothing in the Bible ever talks about a vow of poverty. That's man-made. So I, I just really want to shake us loose from that for a few moments and say, I don't have any idea that if God were to sit down with you in a room or Christ were to be here with you, I don't have any idea that he would tell you to sell everything, give it away. In fact, I think what you're going to be surprised to find out today is that what God would like for you is God would like for you to be prosperous. In 1 John 3, 2, the aged apostle, he had been a young man when he was one of Jesus' 12, but by the time he's writing now, he's probably close to 90 years of age, and he's writing in church, and he's saying to them, I hope you prosper in three ways. He said, I want you to prosper. I hope your soul prospers. I want you to prosper spiritually. Then he said, I want you to prosper in health. I want you to have good health. And then he said... I want you to prosper in a financial way. And I believe that's God's wish for you. 
I mean, obviously, we're going to come to a place when we cross over that the only one of those three that will matter is our spiritual health because we're going to leave behind our bodies and we'll leave behind our money. But while we're here, it's important to be in good health. And it's important to have enough to meet the challenges of life. I can't think, in all the years of study, I cannot think of one scripture verse in the Bible where God is saying he wants you poorer. He wants you to be good to the poor. But I can't think of any place in the Bible where God says he wants you to be poorer. In fact, what we're going to discover today is that God gives you, God gives you strategies for money that will help you expand your financial blessings. If you're here today and God has blessed you and you've gotten your money the right way and you treat your money the right way and you're rich toward God, you have no guilt. You have no reason to feel guilty. If God has blessed you, then rejoice in God's blessing. The book of Proverbs, as you know, and that's what our series Going Pro is about. It's a play on words. It's Proverbs, Proverbs. It's God's book of wisdom so that we'll know how to live before it's time to die. God's book of wisdom talks about all kinds of subjects, and one of the most frequent subjects Proverbs talks about is money. And what Proverbs talks about, and, and now here's, forgive me for, for digressing for just a moment, but when I had to think about branding this sermon, I thought, how am I going to do this? Because really what Proverbs is talking about is using money in a smart way. And that made me think about an expression, smart money. I've heard about that all my life. The smart money is here. The smart money is there. Smart money is in tech stocks. The smart money is not in tech stocks. The smart money is in real estate. The smart money is out of real estate. I mean, on and on it goes. We always hear about the smart money. It's like the smart people who are investing their money are putting their money here. So I actually thought about doing a message called smart money versus dumb money. And you know, when I thought about that, I didn't realize that dumb money is a real term. That is actually a, a legitimate real term. It is coined by Wall Street uh, for people who follow the herd. They have a herd mentality, and they invest on emotion. In fact, specifically, what dumb money refers to is people who sell when their emotion tells them the stock is dropping. They'll sell when it's low, turn around, and buy it back when it goes back up. And believe it or not, what Wall Street and, and those who, who watch investing trends, what Wall Street has discovered is a lot of people do this over and over and over again. They'll sell low and buy high, and they call that the dumb money. There's a great article archived in the New York Times, and there was a graphic. I'm not good at reading text, but I'm good at reading pictures. And there was a great picture in this article, and there was like the word knowledge in a box. And then there was the word feelings in a circle and verses in the middle. And New York Times article on dumb money said, dumb money is money that's based on feelings. Smart money is money that's based on knowledge. 3,000 years ago, God's word was all over that before the Wall Street Journal or before the New York Times. In fact, interestingly enough, what we're going to discover today is Proverbs is like Wall Street Journal for God followers. In fact, a lot of times you'll find the same advice in Wall Street Journal that you'll find in the book of Proverbs. So for those of us who grew up in religion who have tight halos, today would be a good day to unscrew them for a few moments. And I don't think this is really going to be a sermon. It's not going to be full of illustrations. It's not going to sound like a sermon. What it is is going to be advice. It's like a wise grandfather, a wise grandmother, a wise aunt, a wise uncle who would slip his or her arm around you and give you advice. 
about how to handle money, smart money versus dumb money. Be a great day to take notes. So if you take notes with an electronic device, you might want to get it out today. And if you're old school like me and you still use a pen and a pen, I was traveling the other day, driving from Texas to Wichita, and I was looking for a pad and a pen to make notes. I stopped at place after place after place and told them what I was looking for, and they looked at me like I was a Neanderthal. But, you know, whatever you use to take notes, today would be an extraordinarily good day to take notes because there is smart money and there's dumb money, and God wants you to be blessed. Now, I know right out of the box I have a handful of you who come from a very, you know, conservative evangelical tradition, which probably I do as well, and it's like, oh, no, I hope he's not going to get into prosperity theology. No, I'm not getting into prosperity theology. But there's no such thing as poverty theology either, by the way, Okay. So let's get on our horse and ride this morning. We're going to talk about smart money and dumb money. Uh, let's get it out of the way first. Let's talk about dumb money. Proverbs is going to tell us what dumb money does. Number one, dumb money fantasizes. Probably as much as anything in life, in any subject, there are rules to money. But people who fantasize about money, they ignore the rules of money. And ignoring the rules of money, they hope that there will be some sort of mystical windfall out of something. Now, first of all, before I get into that, what do I mean by rules for money? Well, you know, money's, money's got hard and fast rules. Like if your outgo exceeds your income, your upkeep will be your downfall. Or money leaves a trail. Or you can only spend money once. And those of you who are smart money people, you have all these understandings that there's no mystery, there's no magic to money. Money is a, it's, it's one of those things that's got hard and fast rules. You budget, you work hard, you save, you invest, you give God what belongs to him. But people who are foolish about money oftentimes fantasize. And that's what the Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 11. A hard worker has plenty of food, but a person who chases fantasies has no sense, or maybe better yet, has no center. In other words, a person hopes for a windfall of money without any undergirding logic for it. In Proverbs 14, 23, the Bible takes us another step further. It says, work brings profit, but mere talk leads to poverty. How many of you have met somebody who's always talking big numbers, but there's no reason for the big numbers? You know, in Texas, we used to say they're all hat and no cattle, but uh, these are fantasizers. I don't want to get on a soapbox today, but am I, am I wrong, or, or even here in Wichita, it's like every day when I travel, it's like there's another sign for a casino. And, you know, just, just me talking. I wonder, can people connect the dots? See, wise people can connect dots. People that are not wise can't connect dots. And so I see these casinos when I'm on I-35, especially when I'm going to Texas. There's this huge one down on the, on the border of Texas and Oklahoma. And it's like every time I pass it, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and more elegant and more elegant. And I'm thinking to myself, and the place is always packed with people. Every time I drive past it, it's like... It's like thousands of people must be there. And I always wonder to myself, can they connect the dots and realize that all those elegant buildings were not put there because people won money? (laughs) 
When you go to Vegas and there's all the glitz and glamour, are you cognizant of the fact that all that stuff is there? Not because people have won money. They've lost money. I'm not saying it's the worst thing in the world to do that. But on the other hand, i got to tell you something. I drive by there, and my heart, I just think, man, what, what kids are not going to have school clothes? Because dad went there and fantasized about wealth. No undergirding. I mean, if there was, if there was logic to it, logic says the house wins. But, he, see, this guy doesn't employ logic. It's like, whoa, I'm going to have this windfall. But I wonder how many kids are going to be hungry because dad blew the wad there at the casino. I drive down, and this is not as serious as even that, but I drive down the streets or I look on the internet and I see that the, whatever the big mega millions lotto is up to $300 million. Now I'm thinking, can people connect the dots? Is that $300 million because all the outlets, all the vendors of those lottery tickets got together and their corporate backing decided to just goose up the lottery and go into their corporate treasuries and take out hundreds of millions of dollars? No, those hundreds of millions of dollars are people who stood in line at Quick Trip and bought lottery tickets and didn't even get a big gulp for it. Got a piece of paper. See, the thing about it, the reason why it's up to $200 million is there's 200 million suckers. <laughs> and logic connects the dots. And if you buy a lottery ticket, it's not the worst thing in the world. If I'm at Quick Trip and you're buying a lottery ticket, please, I'm not going to freak out. I'm just telling you. <laughs> Although it does bother me that I have to wait in line to buy my drink because you're buying your lottery ticket. <laughs> Dumb money fantasizes. Okay, let's move on before I get in trouble, okay? And probably the most common dumb money thing that Proverbs talks about over and over is dumb money is lazy. Lazy. There's so many verses about laziness, and there are various shades of, of information here on this subject. In Proverbs 10, verse 4, it says, lazy people are soon poor. In other words, it doesn't take long for a lazy person to have to deal with the ramifications of being lazy. Proverbs 12, 24, work hard and become a leader, be lazy and become a slave. I've got to be careful with that one because in our American history, we have a very awful chapter about slavery. This is a different kind of slavery here. We're not talking about falling into becoming owned by someone else. What we're talking about is that the harder you work, the more flexibility and the more choice you have in life. And the lazier a person is, the fewer choices a person has. And another ver the next verse tells us a reason for that. Proverbs 10, 26, lazy people irritate their employers like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes. And all managers here said amen to that, right? <laughs> lazy people just drive you crazy because you have more trouble at the end of the day than you started out with. And Proverbs 13, 4, lazy people want much and get little. A lazy person will want more than a hard worker will want. Isn't that true? How many of you are managers? You've got a lazy person. That lazy person will expect more than somebody else who's a top producer. Lazy people want much. They get little. That's a recipe for becoming a burden to others. And then my favorite one, a lazy person's way is blocked with briars. If you ever have to manage a lazy person, notice how creative they are when it comes to excuses. If they worked as hard at their job as they worked coming up with excuses, they would be very successful. 
But lazy people always have a reason. I have a bad back. It's not a good day. It's not good weather. And they go from job to job. I don't like working for that boss. I don't like working in that place. I don't, I've got a problem with this. In fact, I was a kid growing up, and my Sunday school teachers just teach through Proverbs. I used to love this verse. Loafers say, it's dangerous out there. Tigers are prowling the streets. I can't go to work. There could be a lion out there in the street. I'm going to pull the covers up over my head. <laughs> Dumb money's lazy. There's no cure for laziness. Number three, dumb money is impulsive. In Proverbs 19, verse 2, enthusiasm without knowledge is no good. Haste makes mistakes. How many of us have bought something that was shiny, bought something before we thought about it? How many of us have, how many of us have made a purchase and gone home and sat in a chair and been sick at our stomach? I hope you didn't feel that way right after you got married. But, I mean, how many of you, how many of you bought something? It's like, I can't believe How many of you bought a car? And it's like the shine was there and the salesman had a great pitch. And you go home you think about how am I going to make the payment? And, and, you know, how am I going to buy the gasoline for that? And get home and get sick of yourself. Why? Because it's impulse buying. See, you remember New York Times said the same thing that the Bible says. New York Times says dumb money goes on feelings. Whereas Proverbs 22.3 says a prudent person foresees danger and takes precautions. The simpleton goes blindly on and suffers the consequences. Um, we have a Financial Peace University a group that's studying right now, Dave Ramsey study, which is just a phenomenal opportunity for those of you who are interested in, in having better finances. But one of the first things that Dave teaches is that you need to have a budget. You need to determine ahead of time what you can spend, what you're going to spend, and then stick to that budget. And that takes the impulsivity out of it. And then number four, dumb money. Here's one that's very close to the previous, and that is that there's no margin in dumb money. See, here's the thing. What happens to a lot of Americans is they will push to the very edge what they can afford, and then an unexpected expense comes along, and it throws them into turmoil. 43% of Americans spend more every month than they take in. I guess they're just following the lead of our government. But the difference is the government can print money, and you and I can't, okay? In Proverbs 21, verse 20, the Bible says, The wise have wealth and luxury, but fools spend whatever they get. Well, what happens if you push all the way to the edge? In other words, you say, well, I could buy this car, and I would have plenty of money to buy it, but I like this car better. It's got a bigger engine. It's shinier. It's bigger. You know, I think I'll buy this one, but it would push the payment would push me to the edge. Right? I, this house would be adequate, but oh, this house has got features that I like that I see on HGTV. And if I bought this house, it would be really great. But it would payment would push me right to the edge. See, what happens is Americans get pushed to the edge, and they have no margin, no margin. Well, if you're pushed to the edge, and then an unexpected expense comes up, how do you meet that unexpected expense? You get it by borrowing. But there's a verse in Proverbs about borrowing. You know, there's at, there, there, there are compelling reasons to borrow. Obviously, most of us are not going to get a house without getting a mortgage. And some student debt, certainly, is reasonable. But could I say this? For those of you who are borrowing money for an education, go to class. <laughs> I meet young people who have $100,000 in student debt, and they don't have an undergraduate degree yet. 
They said, well, why? Well, I tried this for a while, and then I tried that for a while, and then had a bad season, dropped out of those classes, and then started a semester later. Listen, if you're borrowing money to go to school, go to school. Get on your horse and ride. There are compelling reasons to borrow, but there's something that all of us need to remember. In Proverbs 22, 7, it says, A rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is slave to the lender. And anybody who's been in debt to a place where it began to determine what you do, then you know what it means to be a slave. I was talking to a friend of mine this week who's been very, very judicious with his finances, and he's a successful executive. And he's said, you know, when the others were buying multi-million dollar homes, he and his wife live in a nice home, but it, it was good enough for them. And he's at a stage in life where he doesn't owe anything. Everything is paid for. His house is paid for. His cars are paid for. His kids' education is paid for. And now he's in a stage in life where he's sought after. And he can take the job that he wants to take. He can take the job that interests him. Why? Because he can afford to do it. See, he's not a slave. There are people today working in places they don't want to work. I hope Wichita's not that place. There are people who are working in places they don't want to work. They're doing jobs they don't want to do because they borrowed to the place where now they're a slave to the debt. Well, number five, dumb money is stingy. In Proverbs 21, verse 13, by the way, when I say dumb, I'm not talking about dumb people because smart people can do dumb things. This is, these are just dumb practices. Stingy. Those who shut their ears to the cries of the poor will be ignored in their own time of need. I can't afford that. Can you? Number six, dumb money takes ethical shortcuts. In other words, here is someone who says, I'm going to get rich, but I'm going to do it by harming somebody else, or I'm going to do it by being dishonest. The Bible says dishonest money dwindles away. In Proverbs 10, verse 2, it says, ill-gotten treasures are of no value. Proverbs 28, 8, he who increases wealth by exorbitant interest, by taking advantage of others, amasses it for another who will be kind to the poor. In other words, God is saying, I'm up here in heaven watching what's going on. And so if somebody gets money by taking advantage of people, God says, I'm going to take that person's stack and move it over to somebody who will be good to people. And then number seven, and this is a very different direction here, but dumb money makes a bad trade. In other words, in the quest for money, dumb money sometimes will trade something that money cannot buy in order to acquire money. Now, this is very different. I see a person here who's a hard worker. This person's not lazy. This person may be very honest. It's just that the quest for money means that he or she must give something up that money can't buy. In the quest for money, they give up a marriage. In the quest for money, they give up priceless time with their children. Or it could be that in a quest for money, they do a job that ruins and wrecks their health. It is said that John Rockefeller, if you think about his wealth in today's dollars, John Rockefeller was the richest person ever to live. If you took his wealth and you, you turned it into 2014 dollars, he would have had $320 billion. And yet, because of the turmoil that John Rockefeller had, he had digestive trouble for much of his life. And for a long period of time, John Rockefeller could only eat crackers and drink milk. That's all he could have. $320 billion. And he had to subsist on crackers and milk. Now think about this. Here's somebody who works in his stock room who can have a steak and a baked potato and chocolate cake. But poor John Rockefeller with $320 billion, what can he have? Crackers and milk. 
And so the Bible is trying to coach us here by saying, it's a good thing to be successful. It's the good thing to be prosperous. But in the quest for prosperity, if you lose your marriage, then what have you gained? In the quest for prosperity, when you go to your kid's high school graduation and you don't know the kid going across the stage who has your name, what have you gained? The Bible says, better to have little with fear for the Lord than to have great treasure and inner turmoil. And then in Proverbs 1.18, these people set an ambush for themselves. In other words, people who live for money at the expense of precious things are setting an ambush for themselves. All right, enough dumb money. For the next few moments, let's talk about smart money. What does the Bible have to say about smart money? Here's the first thing. Smart money pays attention. Smart money pays attention to money. You know, one of the things I've discovered about Americans is a lot of times Americans don't know what they make, they don't know what they're spending, and they don't know where they are. In Proverbs 14, verse 16, it says, The wise are cautious and avoid danger. Fools plunge ahead with reckless confidence. But I think, and here's what I'm convinced, this is maybe the most important verse on money in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 27, verse 23, Know the state of your flocks. Notice that it doesn't say check the state of your flocks. It says, know it. Know the state of your flocks. I meet people all the time and say, well, where are you financially? Well, I don't know, but I can go get that information. No, the Bible is saying, have a running sense of where you are. Know within a few dollars where you are. What do you have available? Know where you are before you go shopping, not after you go shopping. Know the state of your flocks. And then the Bible says, put your heart into caring for your herds. In other words, nobody's gonna, nobody else is responsible for our finances. I don't want to be too hard on men here, but just history has taught me that a lot of guys need to hear this verse, to put your heart in the state of your flocks, into caring for your herds. I think there are guys whose moms and dads handled money when they were growing up, and as soon as they get married, they think, oh, here's somebody who handled my money for me. And, and they don't know what, well, that's, that's, her, that's her responsibility. And then the guy will go ballistic when something goes wrong. What the Bible says, put your attention on caring for your resources. And then number two, smart money understands the wealth process. There are key, three key aspects to the wealth process. And God tells us to learn it from an interesting place. Take a lesson from the ants. Because the ants are going to teach us what the three aspects of the wealth process are. Number one, verse seven, though they have no prince or governor or ruler to make them work. So number one, they have self-discipline. They do what they do not because their parents make them do it. Their wife or husband makes them do it. They do what they do not because the government makes them do it or their boss makes them do it. But they bring their own discipline in their own lunchbox. Self-discipline. And then the second thing, they labor hard. They work hard. And then number three, all summer gathering food for the winter, they save. They discipline, they work, they save. Here's my personal favorite in this message. Number three, and I don't know what to call this. For lack of a better term, I just said smart money is creative. Look at this verse right here. Lazy people don't even cook the game they catch, but the diligent make use of everything they find. Do you know, I've had the privilege of hanging around some smart, rich, godly people. And I'll tell you one of the things that always amazes me. They don't always drive the newest cars. They don't always have the latest phone. I have a dear friend in Texas. 
He is a great businessman. Started his own firm and his company. Well, if I begin to name his clients for you, it would be who's who in, in, the, in the food world. And, and he is successful. I mean, successful beyond his company's ability to meet the needs of their clients. And not only that, he is a very godly man. And, and I just love hanging around him. I always tell him, John, you're who I want to be when I grow up. But it's funny, I'm staying in this house a lot. They have a beautiful home in Fort Worth, magnificent home. And I walk through his garage, and he has like a Hyundai Sonata from about four generations ago. And I asked him one time, I said, why did you buy that car? And he said, well, the new Sonata was coming out, and the dealership was just about giving those away. So I decided I'd buy one. And he's got an old flip folk, you know. <laughs> See, that's the thing. Uh, the Bible says a lazy person won't even collect the game that's right there for him, whereas a smart person will think, how can I utilize what I already have? If there's life in it, if there's value in it, I don't have to buy the newest gadget just because I want to be hip or trendy. One of my favorite statements about money is Americans will buy things they don't need with money they don't have to impress people they don't like. <laughs> and so, in other words... Wise, smart money doesn't just buy to buy. Smart money just, it doesn't buy just to have status. It's getting quiet in here. Some of you may wish I would talk about giving to the church, really. <laughs> Number four, smart money has an eye to promotion the right way. Smart money people know this. The more I produce, the more freedom I get, higher I rise. They're not trying to rise by knowing the right person. They're not trying to rise by kissing up to the right people. Smart money have an eye to promotion the right way. Proverbs 12, 24, work hard and become a leader. Harder you work, the more you put into it, the more you produce, the more freedom you get in life. Number five, smart money is generous. We're going to look at the bright side of what we talked about a few moments ago. The Bible says give freely and become more wealthy. Be stingy and lose everything. The generous will prosper. Well, that would just be good right there. The generous will prosper. Some people think the stingy prosper, but the generous prosper. That's the word of God. These are those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. You want to be refreshed financially? Then refresh others. And then Proverbs 19, 17. If you help the poor, you're lending to the Lord, and he will repay you. I mean, so as you came to church here today and you wind up and you see worshiping and you look at the guy next to you, he's got long hair and a beard and, and wearing a robe and after a few minutes, I don't think he looks like that, but you, and I'm, I'm next to Jesus. My goodness, I've come to New Spring and there's Jesus right there. All of a sudden he leans over to you and says, hey, thought about somebody I want to help. You got a 20 on you? Jesus, the one who created the universe, spoke the world into existence. You're not afraid about your 20, right? He's saying, would you just lend me a 20? Would you lend me a 20? Say, here, Lord, take two 20s. Lord, just take my debit card. Here's my PIN number. Why are you lending to Jesus? And the Bible says this, that if you are generous with people who are in need, you are lending to the Lord. And this is true, and I've, I've seen it play out, you know, on a consistent basis in my life. But I remember learning this lesson in a special way many, many years ago. Our old church location was on South Hillside, and across the parking lot from the worship center was a parsonage that my family lived in. And this is back when there was a two in front of my age. 
Jonathan was probably about four, so this will give you some idea how long ago it was. There was a mission house in the back of the parsonage. So when missionaries came to our church, they would stay in the room adjoined our house, and so we spent a lot of time with them. And I remember a missionary couple. I think they're missionaries to Australia, if memory serves correctly. And we were outside, and the wife came up to the husband. I think I've been talking to the husband, and the wife came up, and I heard her talk to him, and she said, I need to get a haircut. But she said, you know, I only have like, like $5. And she said, I've, I've heard that there are like uh, schools, cosmetology schools, schools that teach haircutting. He said a lot of times you can get a cut from a student, and it won't cost very much. And, and to me, not that I had a lot of hair, but that didn't sound like the greatest thing in the world, you know. And, and so I, I said, well, w- w- you know, and this got to realize it's been a long, long time ago. Uh, what would a haircut cost us? That's okay. She said, well, maybe $20. And so I reached into my wallet and got out my last $20 bill. And you got to know, all I had left was coins. And so, you know, I'm thinking, that really wasn't the smartest thing in the world to do because I don't even have the money for my own haircut now. But I took the coins that I had left and went down to Quick Trip to buy my beloved Diet Coke. And I bought my diet coat and came back to my car. And I looked down by the door of my car, and there was like some bills just kind of wadded up. And I reached down to pick them up, and there was $35 there. In fact, there was nobody else around, nobody else in the parking lot. I walked into the store, and I said, hey, I just found this to the guy behind the counter. I just found this. Has anybody lost any money? Anybody talked about losing any money? No. No, I haven't heard anybody about losing money. So I, I stood outside. And when people would drive up, here's the real miracle. <laughs> Not that I found the money. Here's the miracle. People would drive up. I'd say, Is this, did you lose some money? I mean, I'm holding it up. And people would say, no, I didn't lose any money. Now, that's the miracle. <laughs> and after about 10 minutes of doing that, the Lord is saying, are you paying attention, Mark? And the Lord was saying, you loaned me some money a little while ago, and here's your money back with interest. See, that's the thing. We feel like, oh, I've got to hold on to what I have. I mean, I've I got to keep what I have in a very closed fist. And God is saying, no, when you're generous, if you loan to the poor, God is saying, you're really loaning to me. It's true, they can't pay you back. And I'm not talking about... You know, some of you have somebody in your life who's a deadbeat, and, and they're not serious, and they're always, they're, can, you me, can you loan me some money? And, and, and you know they're not serious about money. I'm just talking about somebody that's truly having a difficult time. And Jesus is saying, if you, lo- if you take care of them, you're loaning it to him. And it's safe if you loan it to Jesus. And then finally, and you know I was going to be here because Proverbs is here, smart money's God-focused. Smart money's God-focused. In Proverbs 3, verse 9, the Bible says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and the best part of everything you produce. Now, the word honor there means to value. So the Bible is saying value God, God's work. And if you're not a New Springer, please don't take that for New Spring. Just wherever you worship, you need to value God in that place. Now, we're not talking about generosity to the poor. We've already talked about this. We're talking now about God's work. And God says, value him with the best. Now, in, in our situation, in my life, we, we believe, and I know that this is a personal conviction, and, and I'm not preaching it to you, but we believe that the tenth is God's. And so for years, we brought that to the Lord and then brought offerings on top of it. But in our, in our house, regardless of where we were financially a lot of times, we just brought that to the Lord. And because the Bible says, value the Lord with the best. 
See, here's the thing. If you could get into my financial records, if you could look at my, I don't know if it's, doing, it's not a checkbook anymore, but you know, we keep, keep financial records of our monthly expenditures. If you could get into my expenditures, you could see how much I value entertainment. You could see by my financial records how much I value the house that I live in. You could see how much I value staying warm in the winter. You could see how much I value food. You could see how much I value my three or four-year-old Hyundai. See, here's the thing. If you could get into my financial records and you would know what I value, I could stand here all day and tell you what's important to me, but if you look at my financial records, you know. You know what's valuable. The rest of it's just blowing smoke. And hopefully, I really believe if you could get into my financial records, you could see that I value God and value his work. Can I ask you a question? Is there anything from your income? Now, the Lord says to honor him with the best, but is there any part of your income that you would consecrate to God? By consecrate, I mean set it aside. 1%? Do you value God 1%? Do you value him a half percent? A quarter percent? I'm not, I don't know, I, and I'm never going to know. I'm just asking you to think that. I'm, this is not between you and me. This is between you and God. I mean, if God has been good to you, at what point does he become valuable? Does his work become valuable? To say, I love God, I value God, God has been good to me. And, and, and here's the thing, let me just tell you this. If the Bible says to me, Mark, honor God with the very best of your produce, and there was a period right there, honestly, that would be good enough because he has been good to me. He has given me everything. He has given me a wonderful wife. He's given me three wonderful sons. He's given me two magnificent daughters-in-law. He's given me three perfect grandchildren. He has given me the greatest job in the world. He has given me health and strength to be here today. And when I've been through difficult, hard times that I didn't think I was going to survive, God reached down and he pulled me out and brought me out so that I would have another day to live. God has been so good to me that if he said, Mark, honor me with the very best that you have in your income, that would be, if he stopped it right there, that would be good enough. But he doesn't. Let's read on. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part of everything you produce, then he will fill your barns with grain and your vats will overflow with new rain. New wine. God is saying, Mark, if you will value me, I will value you. Mark, if you will value what I'm doing in the world, I will value what you're doing in the world. Mark, if you invest in what I'm doing, I'll invest in what you're doing. And I can tell you this, his investments are better than mine and bigger than mine. Smart money versus dumb money. Maybe the greatest challenge that we'll face in life is how do you handle the finances that God has blessed you with? Remember this. God doesn't want you poor. He wants you to be good to the poor, but God wants to bless you. And if we will take his, his strategies for smart money, well, then not only will we be blessed and be able to enjoy richly, as the Bible says, all the things that God desires for us to richly enjoy, we'll be able to invest in the lives of others and make the world a better place. Thank you for being here. We'll see you next weekend. God bless.